Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is December 17th, 2021. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by two dear friends and colleagues, Fadi Karan and Peter Beiner. Fadi and Peter are analysts and thought leaders and, and friends who I always enjoy thinking with and learning from. Um, and I wanted to, to sit down metaphorically with them today as 2021 comes to a close and we can maybe think together about the year that has passed and about what's coming next, what we see. Um, obviously, longtime listeners to the podcast and both know Peter and Fadi already, just very briefly as introduction. Fadi is campaigns director at Avaz, which is a 60 million person strong global movement mobilizing for change. Fadi leads Avaz's MENA human rights work, as well as Avaz's counter disinformation efforts. And he is a leading community organizer in Palestine and previously worked as a UN advocacy officer at Al Haq. He's widely published in the New York Times, NPR, Guardian, AFP, Time, Daily Telegraph, and other outlets. Um, if you're not reading and following Fadi, you should be. Um, Peter Beinart is a non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. We are so proud of that. He is also a professor of journalism and political science at City University of New York, a contributing opinion writer at the New York Times, an editor-at-large at Jewish Currents, a CNN political commentator, an author, um, and one of the people that I look to for challenging the status quo thinking um, within the American Jewish community in particular. So I want to thank you guys both so much for being here. Um, just as a way of starting us off, it's obviously been a busy year uh, and a big year, right? We have a new administration in the United States, new government in Israel. We had a summer surge in violence in the Holy Land. We had uh, violence in Jerusalem, Gaza, inside 48 Israel, culminating in the emergence of what some are calling the unity intifada, with Palestinians rising up on both sides of the green line, including Ufadi, and people like Ufadi mobilizing publicly against um, the, the repression of the Palestinian Authority. We've also seen a rise in state-backed violence. Um, we've been seeing that right now, um, and, and really just so much more. So Fadi, why don't we start with you? Um, I was going to say, you know, give me your top 10 list, but that's silly. So maybe just if you want to talk about a couple things that for you stand out as the, the, the most important developments of the past year. And then Peter, jump in uh, as, you know, as Claudia's going or, or I'd think about what you want to say next. And then I'll offer my own thoughts as well. Thank you, Laura. And it's good to be with you and Peter as, as this year ends. And... I think next year, and I think we'll get to next year in a little bit, but I, I'm very excited about next year because what we're seeing, what we saw in 2021, I think were three kind of core moments. So starting at the very local level, I think event number one is Sheikh Jarrah and the Palestinian coordination that happened across, um, you know, historical Palestine, whether it was the um, strike on May 18th, which all Palestinians participated in, or whether it was the kind of continued protests that happened. And I think that's one important, very momentous shift in terms of Palestinian organizing. The second thing I would say on the international level uh, that was pivotal um, this year 
was the recognition by Human Rights Watch and then Beit Salem and then a number of other influencers, opinion leaders, academics that you know, Israel's committing the, the crime of apartheid. And I think this is, when we look back at 2021, this is going to be another watershed moment that people remember. And then the third um, piece from a kind of Palestinian context that was just huge um, this year is the, the Palestinian authorities' assassination of Nizar Banat, but really the response to that, where I think at, at no point, and even PA officials have stated this, have they felt a complete loss in legitimacy. And whether that includes kind of them canceling elections, whether that includes increasing repression, um, the core piece here is that the Palestinian Authority does not have any legitimacy to claim that it represents um, the Palestinian people apart from its iron grip. So those are what I would say the top three. Of course, what I would add on the Israeli side, which you already mentioned, is, is the elections and kind of Netanyahu disappearing from power. But I think uh, from a Palestinian perspective, honestly, although that seems like a big shift, our experience of the occupation hasn't really changed much. Um, and I'll, I'll hand over to you. I'd love to hear what both of you kind of have to say. All right, Peter, you're up next. And you're muted. Yeah, let me just talk, I'll just talk a little bit of maybe just about the US because I don't know um, things on the ground like Fadi does. I, I just try to learn from, from him and others who are on the ground. I think when I think about the United States, I think one way of thinking about what's happening, what's happened this year and I think will continue to happen, which is really significant is, and I think encouraging, is I think we are moving towards a more genuinely um, Jewish and Palestinian movement in the United States, Jewish, Palestinian, and, and more and broadly. I mean, if you think about this moment, you have the BDS movement starting in 2005, um, which represents a kind of a, a new moment in Palestinian solidarity circles. And then you have, uh, in the, you have J Street starting in 2009. And these are really working on very parallel tracks. Um, with totally different visions. J Street is a Jewish movement. And then if not now, basically, if not now, a little bit less, but liberal Zionists within a two-state framework. The BDS movement is challenging that framework and led by Palestinians, bringing in, in others. And, and I think what's happening is that the, the boundaries between these two movements are starting to collapse. But, but, you know, or another way, even more provocative way you could say it is, the Palestinian solidarity movement is in some ways becoming broader and taking in, I would say. It's not necessarily a kind of equal marriage, I would say, because movement on the ground has made the two-state solution and the idea of liberal Zionism harder and harder and harder to maintain, that I think ultimately what's happening is you're ultimately what we have to move towards. And I think what is happening is a broader Palestinian solidarity movement that in which uh, in which people who used to be liberal Zionists or support two states and more people inside the Jewish community and others find their way into and find point. Now it's not an easy set of relationships always. It, and, and, and I think it involves lots and lots of different kinds of conversations and things that are difficult to figure out in a lot of ways. Um, and you don't see it necessarily manifested in Washington where the where you know a group like J Street is still much much more influential than the Palestinian solidarity groups. But if you think of where the momentum is coming, and I think especially because the Black Lives Matter movement 
forced a new kind of reckoning in the American public square with the lack of representation from Palestinians, which I don't think is going to, I don't think it's going to end. So Palestinians, I think, are going to become more prominent in these conversations. And as Palestinians become more prominent, I think we will see a, a broader Palestinian solidarity movement in which Jews, including Jews who used to be considered themselves liberal Zionists, and maybe even still some who do consider themselves liberal Zionists, will find a place. And I think that will ultimately be a more powerful opposition to the status quo than what we've had before. I would love to see it replicated inside Israel-Palestine as well, you know, within which you might see merits joining into a broader joint list. It seems to me that seems to me the vision that one needs more generally in which you, you bring together a kind of broad movement to fight against the ethno-national, the kind of hyper-ethno-nationalism and racism that we see represented by both the Israeli government and many of its supporters in the U.S. Thanks. I love that you both start off with actually sort of optimistic things because I, <laughs> I was thinking about this and my first thoughts were not, not so much optimistic, but more, you know, reality check. Um, you know, for me, part of this year has been about sort of the, the end of even the hope that a Biden administration was gonna somehow lead us to a breakthrough in Israeli-Palestinian peace, which I think a lot of us who work on these issues um, closely, we're always deeply skeptical about. You don't wanna completely foreclose the possibility of hope, but it was always something to be skeptical about. Um, and their performance thus far would suggest that there's really um, no energy there. Um, I mean, if, if the energy there is going to be spent on things like, we, well, we, we managed to delay temporarily one settlement, but by the way, we've you know given in on the consulate, we've given in on the PLO mission, we've given in on all the other settlements, and by the way, we're not going to say a word publicly to defend the NGO sector, even though defending human rights organizations is part of the what is supposed to be the, the core identity of this administration. Um, it's it's uh, it's hard to believe people are still holding out hope, but I, I mean, that's fine. You need to hold out hope, but pressure is going to matter. And I don't know what, what's going to be possible in the next three years, particularly as we come towards now we're in election cycles. Um, the other piece of it was the reality check is the discrediting this idea that the new Israeli government was going to be somehow changing everything. And as Fadi said, that that isn't true. And, and for, for Americans, not just Jewish Americans, but Americans in general who thought, well, the end of the Bibi era will be the beginning of a better relationship and this will become easy. You know, there's, there's an irony to having the Minister of Diaspora Affairs wandering around the US talking about the shared liberal values that Israel has with American progressives while Israel is literally clamping down on human rights and civil society organizations. Um, you know, shared liberal values it seems as being redefined to mean something that is not liberal at all and which runs counter to the values of most American progressives. Um, to the extent that I would say that I think this year has had you know, some, positive, some positive notes and I, I agree with Fadi very much on the, the apartheid piece of it, right? And this is something, you know, Peter, we had you on the podcast about this. Um, you know, we, we've had, a, it's been fascinating watching the discourse change and that discourse is still highly contested but it has changed in ways that I think were unimaginable a year ago. At the same time, something that I think is, from my perspective, very positive, and maybe this is sort of technical for a lot of people. Um, a lot of us have said for a long time that the, a key to a breakthrough in the narrative and the thinking around Israel-Palestine was to de-exceptionalize Israel and Israeli policy. And Israeli policy has been de-exceptionalized 
in some ways by things like NSO, right? When you have the world suddenly becoming incredibly concerned about surveillance and any conversation about you know, weaponized surveillance takes you back to Israel and any conversation about Israeli weaponized surveillance takes you back to the Palestinians. Um, and that's a clarifying moment for a lot of people. And I think it allows an entry point for people who didn't want to deal with Israel-Palestine to now do so or now be forced to do so. Um, I think likewise, the, the debate around Ben and Jerry's, um, which, you know, it's, it's still, I think it's still not, I, I, it, it's still, you know, not clear to me whether, you know, this will be something that will move more people to be more open to boycotting settlements or even boycotting Israel. I, I have no idea, but it certainly brought it out in the open. And when you pair that with the recent news that Alec is now using these anti-BDS laws as a model for clamping down on climate change or supporters of, of fighting climate change um, for you know people who or companies who want to to challenge the fossil fuel industry, which is by the way is something that a lot of us who work on um, lawfare have been warning would happen, right? But nobody cared when we were warning this in 2017, 2018. Well, it's happening now. And when Alec gets involved and suddenly nationwide, uh, maybe you can say what Alec is just for people who don't. So, Alec is the American legislative, what's the E stand for? Exchange, um, Exchange Council. Yes. Yeah. So this is an organization, a very conservative organization that involves legislators from across the 50 states that drafts a model legislation and then promotes it across all the states. Whether we're talking about things like climate change, they supported the anti-BDS legislation, they've supported stuff on reproductive rights. Um, it's the sort of thing where you now have a national, a national body with enormous weight behind legislation that is explicitly modeled on the anti-BDS bills. So for those of us who said, maybe you're someone who doesn't really give a crap about Palestinians and Palestinian rights and free speech when it comes to Palestine, but you know what? This issue cares about you and it's coming for your free speech. So maybe you should start caring. So I feel like that's a, a point of uh, constructive hope going forward, that de-exceptionalizing of the conversation and an entry point for people to recognize that they're gonna have to care about Palestine because you know, the people who want to shut down all debate around Palestine, all, you know, legit, the ones who want to delegitimize Palestinian rights and Palestinian narratives are also in the process happy to delegitimize rights and narratives on other issues. Um, so that's round one. Um, so you guys are both, you guys get points because you're both positive. I was a little negative, but I managed to find a positive angle to it. Um, Peter, why don't we come back to you? I, I'm curious, you know, is there, you've written a lot about, and you've taught as your other podcast, you've talked about anti-Semitism, how the issue of anti-Semitism has been playing in the politics in the U.S. Do you want to talk a little bit about how, how you see 2021 on that issue, the pushback to the extent that we had it with the JDA, the Jerusalem Declaration, and how you see that shaping up um, in 2022? We don't have to. We don't have to make yeah. firm predictions. By the way, I'm not asking people to like put money on the table here. I mean, I guess what strikes me, you know, on the anti-Semitism part, but on the Israel-Palestine part in general in the United States, is how vast the discrepancy is between the intellectual debate and the and the and the political power dynamic. You know, um, I mean, I think the GAD is a good example. I mean. There are barely any serious like Jewish studies academics in the United States or anywhere else really who think that the IHRA definition is worth anything really. 
I mean, right, these are basically, these are basically, you know, political operatives basically pushing this thing in order to basically make it impossible for Palestinians to kind of organize politically. And like, the JDA is just an expression. It was like, it, they could just snap their fingers and basically most of the people who are taken seriously who study Holocaust, study anti-Semitism, say like, this is nonsense. But, and yet, you know, you mentioned Alec, right? You look at what happens at state legislatures. Um, um, the, the power dynamic in the state legislatures is even more extreme than it is in Congress, right? In terms of how dominant the, the kind of the, you know, the kind of conventional pro-Israel forces are. And I think to me, one of the things that I, you know, to be more pessimistic, I worry about is I always think there's this instinct among progressives to believe that history has this progressive arc, you know, and, and I think that to believe that, um, that the political debate, the political dynamic will catch up, you know, to changing demographics in the United States, to the fact that younger Americans, you know, are more progressive, et cetera, et cetera. What we see beyond the Israel-Palestine debate in general in American politics is that at least at this moment, that doesn't necessarily seem to necessarily be the case, partly because we have um, a political system which has such strong anti-democratic features that those and those anti-democratic features can be used so effectively um, um, to maintain policies on a whole range of issues, even if the public may be moving in the other direction. And I, I think that, you know, one of the things that I, you know, one of the things that if you look at organization, the organizations that are built around maintaining the status quo, I'm really struck that they, they're extremely effective. And I think strategically and tactically shrewd, even though they're intellectually bankrupt. The two things don't really have much to do with one another. Um, um, and it's quite remarkable to me. I almost sometimes get the sense that they're not even that interested in the intellectual and moral debates. But as a matter of political chess, they, they, they're, that's really what they organize to do and they do so effectively. And, and, and so, you know, for me, I guess if I think about some of the depressing moments, it's looking at, looking at a guy like Omari Hardy running in Florida in this congressional district, a guy who, you know, just because he seems like a guy who has a moral compass kind of woke up one day and said, you know what, Palestinian rights are consistent with everything I believe, right? And then he gets predictably just snow plowed, right? Buried. And like, who is there to come to his defense, right? Who has power besides some people on Twitter saying like, hey, go Omari Hardy, you know, at Jewish currents, you know, like us and which army, right? You know, it's like, or some, you know, Palestinian activists, like that to me is what's depressing is, is, is that, is that, uh, and that the people on the other side in that debate, who the other, all the other people running in that Florida district, no one called them to account, right? Armari Hardy had to explain 17,000 times why he supports Vetus. No one ever asked them to comment on the B'Tselem or Human Rights Watch reports why they don't think Israel's an apartheid state, right? Um, and most politicians at the end of the day are gonna do what's easier politically. And I feel like that political dynamic, it still feels to me quite far away from, from changing. I just think most members of Congress will look at, you know, Jamal Bowman, uh, you know, God bless him and look at, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, God bless them, and say, who needs that, right? Who needs that level of headache, you know? Um, uh, and and I, we haven't changed that dynamic yet. We, I, sometimes I feel like we're so far away. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I would, I have said to numerous people, I mean, I, I try to, I have some hope in terms of some of the grassroots, move, grassroots movement um, and the energies. 
at the same time, looking at the politics, I, I, I always say to people, look at Richie Torres. Yeah. Um, and, and that's so much um, the direction of where the, the certainly the energies of the those who have power, um, that, that's the direction they're organizing around. Um, Fetty, turning to you, looking again domestically for you, do you want to talk a little bit more, and you can say no, um, about the domestic political situation for Palestinians. I mean, the loss of credibility for the PA, I don't think anyone would dispute that. Um, the lack of a political horizon, which makes it hard to imagine how this PA or any subsequent or, you know, Palestinian leadership could actually build credibility right now under current constraints. What does that look like? What are Pal what do Palestinians want when they talk about elections? Um, and, and do you see a way forward um, that would enable a credible, empowered Palestinian leadership to emerge. Yeah, so I mean, I'd love to speak to that, but I also just want to build on the conversation you were both having a little bit before we move. And I think when, when discussing anti-Semitism and, and the political organizing, one thing kind of from, from a more Palestinian perspective that has dawned more and more, at least on people in my generation, is that our narrative as, as just what's going on with us, right? The fact that we're <coughs> surrounded with cameras that literally flash red, yellow, or uh, green based on facial recognition, that there's a whole system of surveillance, that we have had a woman who fought and almost went on hunger strike just for the right not to have to give birth in a prison. Um, the, the narratives of, you know, people in Sheikh Jarrah in the middle of Jerusalem, surrounded by one of the most powerful armies in the world, you know, staying strong and standing in their homes. And two, basically, uh, you know, early 20-year-olds just like kind of carrying a movement on their backs. All this narrative that, that there are people literally buried, who've been buried, you know, mothers were holding on to the graves of their kids who were killed so that those graves wouldn't be raised by the Israeli military. Like all the stories and, and the epicness of, you know, having 200 kids in prison by Israel right now and still everyday children going out in the face of tanks to throw stones. Like the power of this narrative, if we speak to it just factually, but also in depth, really carries a whole new generation of people. And that's what we saw in May, right? What we saw is more than at any other time, despite all these strategic efforts that I agree with Peter are just genius, like you have to give it to them. Despite <laughs> this, truly, despite all these shrewd, very, you know, excellent efforts to kind of silence the Palestinian voice, that our voice and that narrative, at least for a glimmer, managed to break through. And then it was silence. Then it was silence, you know, whether it was claims of anti-Semitism or whether it was, you know, this terrorist claim against Palestinian human rights organizations, which is also just like a crazy story. You have literally an organization defending children in prison and an organization collecting evidence of war crimes being tried and taken to global court by the war criminal who actually killed over 200 children and presided over 2000 people killed. He's calling them terrorists and trying to take them to court and he's going free. Like the absurdity of it is unbelievable. But what, the reason I say this is because I think all these attacks, these claims of anti-Semitism, these claims of terrorism, what they're meant is actually to silence this narrative, the, the epicness of this tragedy. And oftentimes we can get pulled into 
um, you know, kind of discussing these efforts, um, which, as you say, are academically bankrupt, and forget the powerful narrative underneath. And what we're learning in Palestine is actually maybe the way to defeat these efforts is not to go against them face to face and get into that argument, but to really amplify the, the true narrative underneath. And I think that's something we need to carry because the truth is, yes, they can silence someone like Omari, but if Omari had the narrative that he was confident and he could go up and speak to, I'm defending these children and these people are want children to stay in prison, it would, it would just be much more powerful. And I think that's the game we need to learn how to play. But I just wanted to name that as like the polarities between what we're seeing and why those attacks are happening, at least to some level. Um, but that said, just moving quickly then to the Palestinian context, because it's very similar actually. So if we wanna look at the power landscape, kind of these, these claims of you know, anti-Semitism and terrorism, et cetera, being used to silence Palestinian voices in a kind of disinformative way or dishonest way, the PA uses the same types of narratives claiming to be holding on to pursuing a two-state solution or claiming that it is protecting a certain kind of um, international peace process to get money from the international community. And for many years, we're claiming that to the Palestinian people, this would get us across the threshold to, to freedom and liberty. And the big change that's happening, that happened in this year and that's moving forward is the most recent poll shows that 76% of Palestinians now want Mahmoud Abbas to resign completely. And if he ran in elections, even on, against someone like Ismail Haniyeh, who's the head of uh, the political head of Hamas at the moment, one of its main leaders, who's not really liked, he would still lose. And if he goes against Marwan Barghouti, he would lose by, by a, a full landslide. And at the other hand, what you're seeing locally on the Palestinian level, in almost every circle, um, basically different groups, civil society groups have gone and spoken out and said, this is a dictatorship. Um, different groups within kind of, even Fatah, the leading political party, are breaking away from Mahmoud Abbas. We saw that with Nasir al-Qudwa, etc. And the only response that they've had is of course, using more and more security um, forces to silence this. But where I think this is leading is two options, either a showdown um, where literally you, you get to a boiling point where there is a, a type of, um, you know, hopefully more Tunisia-like, you know, uprising and not something bloody, or where the PA is forced to have some form of elections um, at some point next year. Um, the, third, the third option is, of course, that they go the Sisi route, which is just a complete obliteration and, there, and this is important to note, because of the Biden administration's refusal um, at some level to really engage and push for elections, um, and, and because of its also funding to the PA, regardless of its policies, Mahmoud Abbas is having meetings asking, how can we monitor or shut down civil society organizations? Um, the security forces are having meetings where they have lists of activists that they are thinking about how do we arrest or silence these individuals. They've just funded a new um, surveillance cybersecurity force within the preventative security forces that's designed basically to monitor Palestinians on social media, survey them, and then spread kind of counter disinformation. So all of this is happening 
um, at this moment and where it will lead in 2022. I guess that's the next chapter of the conversation, but I'll hand it back to both of you. Um, I'm, I'm laughing because in 2012, Khalid al and I wrote a piece um, entitled, Will Nonviolent Protests Spark a Palestinian Spring? And, and we were really focused in that piece around the fact that compared to the rest of the region, Palestinians have a much harder spring to have because Palestinians would have to have an uprising against two levels, two layers of, um, of authoritarianism. And that's much more challenging and a much heavier lift. Um, you know, I'm really struck by what you're saying there about the narrative and, and really empowering people with the narrative um, instead of challenging head on these, these false framings like anti-Semitism or the anti, anti-Palestinian anti framing. I will say, you know, for me, when I think about the challenge in the U.S., I, I've spent the past six years or so really steeped in, in, the, legis- in the legal efforts, the lawfare. And I think that it's going to be really important for folks to keep their eye on the ball in the coming year, because as we get to midterm elections, I anticipate even more lawfare efforts when people are trying to score political points to show, look how pro-Israel I am, look how, look how much American free speech I'm willing to give up to prove that I'm pro-Israel. I think that's really going to be tough. Um, and, you know, I look at things like the passage this week of the bill in the House to fight Islamophobia. Um, and I get a little bit of hope from that because that was supported at the end of the day by all, all Democrats. I think it's incredibly um, depressing that not a single Republican could vote for it. But what I get hope from that is the extent to which that there was a, a very serious effort to turn that Islamophobia bill into an up or down vote on are you pro-Israel? And by and large, Democrats resisted that, which I think is really healthy. I will say that you have people like Gottheimer from New Jersey, who played right into it um, and and displayed their own, you know, deep Islamophobic trope embrace. Um, you know, he had he had an amendment to the bill on the floor, which wasn't considered, but it was an amendment which basically suggests that you can't trust Muslims in government um, to not carry an anti-American, anti-Israeli agenda. You have to actually like put limits on what they're allowed to do while they're in government because you can't trust them, which is you know basic anti-Islamic trope that's been used against Muslims in, in public service for years. Um, I, I worry about that. I worry about um, Ted Deutsch um, calling Rashida Tlaib an anti-Semite on the House floor because she dared to use the word apartheid and talk about her family's experience. I think there's some real um, soul searching Dems need to be doing about this because they they clearly have not yet figured out how to how to deal with a shifting and more honest narrative around the Palestinian experience um, and it's painful to watch. The other piece that worries me and maybe I'm too far down in the weeds here, but you know this is what I do here in Washington is the the you know again as we move toward post in in the Trump era it's not post Trump era in the Trump era and as we get towards midterm elections the evangelical end times um, messianic elements of this. Um, We saw that on display this week when we had a far right-wing lunatic member of the house from my home state of Arizona, Paul Gosar, um, uh, misrepresent a UN resolution on Jerusalem and use it as a hook to call for the removal of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is just so strikingly reckless and, and, and just inflammatory. But what's even more reckless and inflammatory when you listen to the language he used he's literally 
dog whistling to the end time folks. He's, 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 he's referencing scripture and he's referencing scripture that talks about the abomination and desolation on the site where the, the temple must be rebuilt. So you can have the second coming of Christ. That scares the crap out of me. I'll be honest. Um, and I really worry that, that Dems who by and large don't want to spend too much political capital on Israel, Palestine and defending Palestinian rights and free speech. I worry that they are not, I worry that their heads are in the sand when it comes to how, how bad this can get. Um, and I think uh, that's gonna be tested next year. Uh, okay, so we have time, I think for one more round. Now here's a round where we can have maybe two more rounds if you really want. I wanna talk um, both really what you see in the next year, opportunities, um, and challenges. I've, I've obviously talked about challenges already, so I won't talk about any of those, um, but you guys both can. Opportunities and challenges going into 2022. Um, Fadi, I'm going to go to you first. First of all, I think this is a good conversation, so I would vote for two rounds um, <laughs> instead of one, <laughs> um, even though that, that would probably not be enough. So I think the core opportunity here to bring things down to basics is that, you know, not to be divisive, but we do have two forces right now that are building up that I think Peter started well in describing, which is one force that is very value-based and kind of sees a world, but specifically in relation to this conflict, sees an opportunity to create, to move towards at least freedom, justice, and dignity. And that the individuals, regardless of their differences in that big circle under that big umbrella, are learning to build more power, whether that's through organizing on the ground in Palestine, whether that's through more collective action in the US, even at the level of congressional engagement, right? Um, Laura, like just to speak to the work you're doing and others are doing. Yes, Congress has, you know, had a lot of flaws, but we've also seen significant changes in the last few years in terms of how it engages with this issue. And that didn't happen randomly, that happened through hard work. So one of the key opportunities I see to build on in 2022 is how do we strengthen that orchestra where we're all playing different instruments from the folks playing BDS to the folks organizing on the ground to the people engaging with Congress. How do we build that together into something that can take on the, the other side, which is also building power and becoming more creative and more ruthless? And I would put two lines under ruthless because here in Palestine, it's become clear that the whether it's the settlers or the Israeli military, that the, the level of openness to violence, um, and, and which has always existed, but it's just becoming more and more um, the best word to use, I think, honestly, is um, like lacks conscious. I don't, you know, it, it really kind of there's there's no moral conscious behind the kind of level of, of things that are being done here. And I think at the same level, the game is getting dirtier in the U.S. with these kind of claims of um, terrorism, etc., and and how they're being underlined. So I just want to name that. You know, the opportunity is that actors that want a better future learn to work better together. And I think it can be a type of civil rights level, anti-apartheid level movement, you know, nothing less than that. I think we have the potential to begin building towards that in the next year and in the years to come at a scale probably not seen in history because of how deep this conflict goes. On the other side, the challenge is that for some people that 
type of movement coalescing coming together is an existential threat, including to the Palestinian Authority who want to maintain their stranglehold over this conflict and how to engage it. Um, so it's not just the Israeli side and they will do everything to silence it. And the other challenge that exists within this that I think we need to name is the tyranny of small differences that can break up this movement over things that really don't matter. Um, I mean, it's, you know, we will have many differences between us as people who believe in freedom, justice, and dignity. The opportunity is to build the wisdom to solve those, but you can also see the kind of what I want to, you know, what I want to call kind of the cancel us culture, where we cancel each other from inside. And I think that's a big threat um, because it can be fed and amplified from bad actors to make us go against each other. And if we spend too much energy there, we lose. The last opportunity kind of for 2022 I want to name is that, you know, I want to call it the rise of new Palestinian leadership. I think, you know, regardless of all the things against us um, as Palestinians, whether it's the strength of the pro-Israel lobby, whether it's the U.S. policy, etc., our core weakness at the moment is the lack of a unified, visionary leadership that is capable of rising through this moment. And I believe there's an opportunity right now that will kind of come to the fore next year that can decide whether we do move in the direction of that visionary leadership or we get stuck with folks like Dahlan and Jibril Rjoub, et cetera, who will just keep us you know, six feet under in terms of our cause. Those are some pieces. I'll, I'll stop there um, and hand over to Peter. Um, yeah, there's so much there that's so important. I mean, I, I just I, I just want to underscore the last point. I mean, it seems to me that ultimately, I think in some ways, you know, what happens in the United States or around the world in general is is going to be somewhat derivative. It, it's going to, you know, it's going to gain ultimately needs the, the power of of the moral leadership and the, and the, and the vision and the struggle that, that happens on the ground. And I think that, um, you know, what you said at the end about visionary leadership, it's in some ways amazing that the movement has been able, for Palestinian rights has been able to accomplish what it has been without that. I mean, if you think about the anti-apartheid movement, you know, from Desmond Tutu winning the Nobel Prize to of course the figure of Mandela kind of as the kind of animating figure that ANC made a very conscious effort. Nobody knew, had met, you know, people hadn't talked to Mandela in decades, he'd been in prison, but they made an effort to, to, to build him up into this symbol. Uh, and, and, and it was able to work because they had a set of principles that he had laid out from the Freedom Charter decades earlier that people around the world could gravitate towards. And um, I, I think that that, you know, you even see that in the absence of political leadership with people like, you know, Muhammad al or all kinds of people, including you, Fadi, I mean, who, who essentially, who's, who's, who create a kind of inspiration for people around the world. But the, it would be so much more powerful if you had political leaders who could offer that. Um, I think that in terms of other things to look at, I mean, one of the things that I, I, I do think is interesting in the U.S. is when will we, when might we get to a moment where a Bernie Sanders comes out for one equal state, you know? Um, could that, it seems to me that, you know, um, you gotta, you know, are, there, there's almost like a kind of a, it's, it's like nobody wants, to, there, there's, politicians don't want to say that, that, that the emperor has no clothes, you know, because, but, but I think that at some point, I think when people break, there may be a breakthrough like that, like that has been on the word apartheid. I think that would be really, that would be really important. I mean, another big wild card, I think, just to put on the table is like, 
is what happens if there's a regional war next year um, because the, the Iran nuclear deal collapses because they this brinkmanship between you know, Israel and Iran and the United States, where they basically try to basically keep the Iranian nuclear program in check with all kinds of sabotage and military action. And the Iranians respond back and forth that it spirals out of control and Hezbollah gets involved. And, and where does that leave us? I mean, it's a terrifying prospect. I have no idea, but I just think it's important that we're closer to that moment than we, I think, have been in quite a few years, because the deal seems probably like you can't Humpty Dumpty back together again. Um, the other question, which I I don't know the answer to, but I just think one has to, I think, I try to think about sometimes, and it's, again, it's very, it's not an optimistic thought, is we are in a moment, both in the United States, but also globally, where if you compare this moment to, let's say, the 1990s, let's say, or even the 2000s, the level of global systemic threats, um, pandemics, climate change, and of course, for us in America, the potential a potential existential moment for American democracy, which we could very clearly be heading to in 2024. In a way, that just makes it all the more difficult, I think, to, to build a movement around, around this. I think it's not entirely coincidental that the anti-apartheid movement came to a successful fruition in the late 80s and early 1990s, at, when the Cold War was ending, and in a moment when in some ways it was it was a moment of a third wave of democratization around the world, and also a moment where in some ways people could focus on this issue. We're now in this, in this kind of almost apocalyptic moment where, and this is, I think, a huge challenge for people who want to organize around this issue in the United States. It's like, you know, young people in America, uh, except, except for those who have a particular interest in this issue because of their background or they have some particular experience, I mean, you know, climate change kind of blocks out the sun, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, understandably, or the question of whether the US, US democracy can survive the Republican Party, which is, a, and so I don't know, the intersection of those two questions, I think also makes things more difficult. Um, um, so those are just some of the things I think to be looking out for, because obviously 2020 could mean as, as we've already, you know, 2020 could bring another, probably will bring more terrifying events you know, both in terms of the future of American democracy and in terms of the global existence on the planet vis-a-vis -vis climate. So I, I had a few notes I'd taken and, and you guys both touched on things just mm -hmm. to sort of piggyback on that where you left it, Peter. For me looking at 2022 and it's, we already had this in 2021, you know, we have a, a global erosion of uh, liberal values, of democracy that has continued and, and that certainly, to my mind, is, is it's fuel. Um, it fuels the fire of what Israel is trying to do in terms of just you know, erasure of the Palestinian cause, delegitimization of the Palestinian cause. That's a challenge. The opportunity there, and, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier, is the de-exceptionalization. Um, where, you know, I still, I, I still haven't heard FDD ever say if Foundation for Defense, um, sorry, sorry, Freedom House on FDD. I still haven't heard Freedom House ever say anything really about the Palestinians and, and the, the issues of Israeli democracy. It would be lovely if they would weigh in. The bottom line is at this point, if you're talking about the erosion of democratic values and liberal values worldwide, and you're not talking right. about Israel, then it's clear that you're making an exception and you're a hypocrite. And that, that I think is, is something that strengthens those of us who are saying, if you care about this worldwide, you have to care about the Palestinians. Um, so both challenge and an opportunity. <laughs> um, Fetty, I want you to write an article entitled The Tyranny of Small Differences, because I think that you, know, you have something to say here. It is a no it's one thing that I, had, I hadn't used that brilliant phrasing, but 
and I'm really careful. I come to this with, the, with great humility. It's not up to me to say to Palestinians, what are small differences? It is, it is going to be enormously challenging. It already is challenging as we see a growing sort of grassroots and a base that maybe saw themselves as liberal supporters of Israel now increasingly take, dipping their toes into standing with Palestinian rights. And at the same time, they many of them um, bring with them great fragility when it comes to concepts that cause them anguish, whether it's the word apartheid. I was recently on a call where a veteran Israeli peace leader basically went off at length about how the use of the word apartheid is the biggest problem today. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This is a call that took place right after the designation of the NGOs as terrorist organizations. I'm like, you're going to spend 10 minutes of our time explaining why using the word apartheid is the greatest threat to peace. But that's what he felt right in his gut. Um, again, there's also something that the whole idea of, and Peter had a, a podcast about this, I think today, the, col the colonial versus, you know, colonial post-colonial framing for understanding the Palestine conflict, which is now very much at the heart of the Palestinian thinking of the, of the next generation, really previous generations as well, but the current generation of, of Palestinian thinkers who are really, I, I think, setting, setting the narrative and doing so with, with, with great, um, with, with brilliance. That's very challenging for a lot of people who see themselves as allies. Um, and I don't know how folks are gonna navigate that. I see a great opportunity here to expand what it means to be in allyship with Palestinians. And I think that there is a, a, a reservoir of support that can be tapped into that wasn't there before as people recognize that, you know, just reciting the catechism of two states simply is not gonna keep doing it. But I don't know how you navigate those small differences. And I don't know how small those differences are. Small is in the eye of the beholder. Um, I think that's a big problem. The last thing I'll mention for me is just it's it's a challenge, which is, again, I'm really stuck in the minutia of the legal efforts. I think this NGO designation story has just started. Um, I think that we are going to see, particularly as soon as we cross the 60-day threshold where the designations become, quote unquote, permanent under Israeli law. And I think we're going to see more designations coming in the, in the near future, um, from what I'm being told by people on the ground. I, I think that is the first step. I think the next step is to start going after the, the partners and allies of Palestinian NGOs, whether they're Israeli or international, and the funders of those NGOs. I think that's inevitable. Um, and, and folks who think that it's okay to stay silent about this, uh, I think are not full. Again, if, if, you, if you say, well, I don't work on Israel-Palestine, this isn't my area. If you care about the civil society human rights sector worldwide, you need to pay attention because this is the, the, the camel's nose under the tent, um, to, to, to use a, a Middle Eastern metaphor. Um, it, it, is, it is, I think, going to be used and, and weaponized in extremely dangerous ways. Um, and, and people have to be ready to, to stand up and guard, not just guard against that, but fight back uh, really hard. All right. So we are at 310 in DC time. Um, that gives us, let's do one quick last thoughts round. I'm going to, I'm going to start and then I'm going to go to Peter and Fadi, you're going to get the last word. So my last thoughts are, I am enormously um, dispirited when I think about this past year and what has gone on. And I appreciate this conversation because it reminds me that there actually are forces on the ground. There, there, are, there are currents that are actually energizing um, the next generation of Palestinian voices. And this is something the foundation has been really working hard, my foundation to, to uplift and to elevate. And I think that if I'd say one thing on this call is a commitment 
you know, on this podcast, a commitment on, on my part to do what I can to center and amplify those voices in 2022, because I think that is just critical. One of the reasons we are where we are today is because for the past decades, many decades, the Palestinians have not really been at the table and their voices have not been heard. And that is something that we are working really in a more serious way than ever to change. And I'm, I, I commit to keeping that going forward. Um, I guess we're doing now the New Year's resolutions. There you go. Um, Peter, you're up. Last, last thought. I mean, I just want to go pick up on, on the point that, that Fadi, you made and you responded to about this, this that's, you know, nar- tyranny of small differences or cancel us culture. I think, I think that, you know, part of the issue is that there's also an industry to, to, to blow these things up, right? So one of the things that we're going to, that we just see again and again and again and again is that pro-Palestinian activists, organizations, whatever, do something that gets labeled anti-Semitic. You know, I mean, it's just, it just happens constantly. And, and, and those conversations, you know, I, I have a piece coming out in Jewish uh, Currents next week, which notes that, for instance, the Washington Post wrote two pieces about Sunrise DC's decision to not participate in a voting rights rally with Jewish Zionist groups, but didn't write a story about the about B'Tselem, Israel's most important human rights organization, calling Israel an apartheid state. So these these issues, although they may seem very, and you know, they actually often get more attention than actually what's the the, 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 the crushing of people's freedom on the ground. I think that that we have to continue to build a, a, a network of relationships. Um, and conversations that allow us to respond to these things. Um, I I don't need to tell either of you that it is, talking about this issue um, is extremely treacherous, right? Um, um, And and it is very, very, very easy to say something that other people will then claim is anti-Semitic and try to use to, and then basically turn around to everyone else and say, well, that person needs to be disassociated from. It's also very, very important that we do recognize that um, that anti-Semitism on the left does exist. It's not something that is. It's not something people on the left are immune from. It's not something that Palestinian rights is racism is immune from. No more than any group of people are immune from from it, right? And so the challenge of kind of working together in order to make sure that we inoculate this movement for freedom and equality from anti-Semitism, and also work to help people avoid putting themselves in a, get, getting put in a situation where their message gets blotted out because they've, they phrase something in a particular way. It pains me to think that people have to, have to be so excruciating about this, but this is actually the situation in which we live. And if we, we need to, we need to get to a situation where the, where the narrative and the stories that Fadi is talking about, about people's lives being destroyed and about a vision for freedom and equality takes center stage and we don't get sidelined by these, by these things and we figure out how to deal with this whole infrastructure that is designed to do exactly that. And I think there's a lot of work that needs to be, needs to take place in that regard. Thank you. I'm just gonna interject here that every movement has its assholes. That doesn't mean a movement is discredited. It's only this movement that is held to that standard. I'll also say just my experience, I I transcribed once a statement that Ilhan Omar made in the House Foreign Affairs Committee where she was basically just just attacked right and left for having made a virulently anti-Israel, anti-Semitic statement. And I actually transcribed the entire thing and put it on Twitter. It sounded like a statement from Peace Now. There was nothing in there. And, And 
the only thing, any, and not Wilf came back at me on Twitter and said, ah, I have the proof she's an anti-Semite because she talked about the, the need to protect the rights of both Israelis and Palestinians. And by using Israelis instead of Jews, that proves she's an anti-Semite because she's not recognizing the right of Jews to their own state. And I'm thinking, if I'm Ilhan Omar, I'm going to try to use, avoid using the word Jewish anytime because I know I'm going to get hit. So she used Israelis and now she's still considered an anti-Semite. I know it's totally no win, but, the, but we still have to work at it. Yeah. Okay. So Fadi, you get the last word. No pressure. It better be brilliant. It's always brilliant, so it's yeah, fine. Exactly. It feels it feels like a, a lot of pressure, especially <laughs> because we we touched on so many things. And you're gonna have to drop the mic. Do you have a mic that you can drop when you're done for the? <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll do the Obama drop the mic um, gesture. So the first the first piece I just want to speak to, um, and I think this is at the core of the world we're living today that Peter touched on, which are the issues related to climate change, the existential threats uh, that face us. You know, AI is a rising threat. People are facing just disasters left and right. There may be a war in the Middle East. Let's remember also the Middle East is pretty much at war with itself. If you look at places like Sudan, etc., and at the core, I think what Palestine-Israel is, is a microcosm of the kind of, you know, philosophical battles that we are facing in every corner of the world, including the battle in the U.S. for democracy. And what I mean by that is there are really kind of two schools today. And one school is a school that says we have more in common as humanity than that which divides us, and we need to fight to find what's in common and to build a better future for our children. And that comes first before anything else. And the other group says, this is my tribe, whether my tribe is Jewish or whether my tribe is Muslim or whether it's the evangelicals or whether it's the Republicans and my tribe matters first. It's a kind of greedy, self, uh, you know, selfish angle that's going on. And Within each of our movements, you know, it's kind of fractals, right? Within each of our movements, these battles repeat themselves again and again, where you have the individuals who want to move towards tribalism, dogmatism, because they believe it's right. I also, we need to be fair. A lot of these individuals truly believe, the evangelicals truly believe that for humanity to actually be saved, you know, the Messiah needs to come back. And that's their religious belief. They believe it for good reasons, but again, it moves towards tribalism. And I think if we manage to succeed in this conflict in, in Palestine and shifting that paradigm and showing that the more in common value that we have supersedes all the little differences, then it will be transformational um, for the world. And that's the battle we're fighting. The challenge here that exists is within those battles, you have these power dynamics that exist, right? If you're, if you're Jewish American, on so many levels, your voice matters more than a Palestinian. Um, and at the same time, we are going against actors that will go to all ends possible, including the worst lies, to devastate those of us who have the loudest voices. Um, and I'll, I'll say even, you know, even to the example, and this is, this is why we need to be so careful next year, but be willing to fight because the battle is coming to each of our doorstep, whether we like it or not. I had the experience and I didn't share this, but I'll share it with all of you. When I traveled to the US in October to visit my father who was sick, for the first time in my life, I was stopped by Homeland Security. 
and in Dallas airport. They stopped me, they interrogated me. And a big, after the, the, you know, the interrogation, what do you work? Have you been arrested? You know, et cetera, et cetera. The core question they asked me, you know, the, the last bit, because the lieutenant who was interrogating me really felt for me. And I also showed him my phone with like personal messages to senators, the members of Congress. I was like, whoever told you that I'm an evil person, you know, these, these senators wouldn't be messaging me if, if I actually was. He was like, listen, and we got a report against you from an allied government claiming that you support terrorism. And, you know, we've been investigating you since May, since May, he said, and I was surprised he shared this information. We've been investigating you. There's nothing on you. I'm going to let you go. But it was the moment you booked your ticket. It was like we had to, um, you know, bring you in and interrogate you on this. And so just to kind of put two lines under what you said, Laura, which is these actors that want to silence the work that we're all doing. Right. It's about all of us are going to go to that level and more. Um, and I think we need to be prepared for it next year. But we also need to remember that the sacrifices we make um, are not just sacrifices for our own personal good. They literally will benefit all the other struggles that all the other groups we care about are going through. And so, you know, let's end with that and start 2022 with that belief that we're serving something much larger than ourselves. I am very glad I gave you the last word, Fadi. I'm, I'm sorry for your experience, by the way, at, uh, at Customs, and I, I really appreciate you sharing that story with us. Um, we're going to wrap it up here. Thank you so much, Fadi and Peter, for this conversation. It, it actually made, I found it heartening personally. I think people listening will find it both educational and heartening. Um, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in to this episode of the Occupied Thoughts podcast. Uh, you can visit our website, www.fmep.org, to subscribe to our many resources, including this podcast, which you can get via iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, and Spotify. If you subscribe, you don't have to worry about ever missing any of these great ones. There's going to be another uh, year-ending one next week, I believe, another wrap-up on the year. Um, and with that, I'm Laura Friedman. I look forward to the next episode, uh, if not this year, the next. Uh, wishing all of you, our listeners, a peaceful end of 2021 and beginning of 2022. And thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.